I was very lucky when I got there to meet Thomas Sowell. He was a virtual recluse. People said, well, where is Tom Sowell? And why doesn't he come in every day? At that time, he was in his 70s. What I would always say is, uh, he writes more than everybody put together. He writes a book every couple of years. When you mention Hoover Institution, it's synonymous with Tom Sowell. And I said, if you're talking about actual fundraising, probably more targeted money comes to the Hoover Institution that can be used for everybody under his name. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. That was Victor Davis Hansen, a colleague of Thomas Sowell's at the Hoover Institution. The two men have been close friends and, in my opinion, intellectual soulmates for the past 20 years. If you like Thomas Sowell, I think you're also going to like Victor Davis Hansen. Dr. Hansen has been extremely prolific lately. He just published a book called The Dying Citizen, which I highly recommend. He also records three podcast episodes a week, which are a must-listen. I'll put links to Dr. Hansen's website, podcasts, and books in the show notes, so check him out. One of the reasons I think Sowell and Hansen are ideological soulmates is that both men are very empirically oriented versus ideologically oriented and they let the facts lead them where they may. In addition, both men speak their minds, and they're not looking for or interested in peer approval. Here's Hansen talking about Sowell on this subject. I don't think I've ever met anybody who was entirely empirical and not ideological in the sense that there's a, his empiricism leads him to certain political beliefs, but he examines everything on his merit. Those two clips were from Victor Davis Hanson's own podcast called The Victor Davis Hanson Show. When I hear people on other podcasts talking about Thomas Sowell, I try to save the clips so I can play them for you here. I'm starting to hear more and more talk about Sowell coming from various sources. That's a good thing. I was listening to Gad Sad's podcast the other day, and he was interviewing Charles Murray. Both of these men are terrific, by the way. I highly recommend you read their books in between reading Sowell books, of course. Anyway, out of the blue, Charles Murray starts talking about Thomas Sowell. Here's the clip. It so happens I'm uh, writing a review of a book uh, about the biography of, of uh, Tom Sowell. Love him. And uh, Tom Sowell, whose career accomplishments are kind of mind-boggling, in, in terms of both the intellectual depth and the breadth of the stuff he's done, the guy grew up, no father, his father died before he was born, his mother's an impoverished uh, maid in segregated South Carolina in 1930, she has four other kids, she can't take care of him, she farms him out to, I can go on and on. Tom Sowell experienced a terrible childhood instead of in terms of intellectual stimulation, terrible. Albeit, 
Forgive mm-hmm. me for interrupting you, Charles. For, forgive me. I'm so sorry for interrupting you. Albeit, there was an important environmental catalyst. I can't remember the gentleman who took him to the New York Public Library where he couldn't believe that there's this place where there are all these books cataloged. So in a sense, that is spe- that, you know, there's got to be some spark because, I mean, if we lose that hope, then we're screwed, right? Okay, but I'll just finish the point. Sure, sorry. Uh, I don't think that he would say that that was a pivotal moment in which he started to get interested in this stuff. He is, and and here's sort of the proof of the pudding as an adolescent. Uh, He was a high school dropout, but the kicker is the high school he dropped out of was Stuyvesant. Right. which is a highly selective right. high school, right. which you only get into if you have stratospherically high test scores. And uh, he obviously recovered from his dropout phase. I'm just making the point, there are so many kids that have really awful childhoods who do extraordinary things. And in fact, there is a school of thought that I suppose you've encountered that, you know what, if you want to do really unusual have unusual accomplishments in life, happy childhood is not uh, really all that great. The point Charles Murray was making in this clip is that Sowell's talents were probably mostly genetically determined and that he achieves greatness in his life because of that genetic predisposition and in spite of his intellectually barren early childhood. Okay, fair enough. You know, I really hope Charles Murray is right about all this stuff and that how I raise my children will have little effect on their chances of success in later life. According to Murray, a person's abilities in life are pretty much baked into their DNA, and there is little a parent can do to positively affect that child's life trajectory. I really hope he's right. That would take so much of the pressure off me as a parent, and I could just leave my kids alone to be all that they can be. That was the way I was raised in the 60s and 70s. They call it benign neglect now. I love that term. At the beginning of that clip, Murray referred to a biography of Thomas Sowell he was asked to write a review of. I'm assuming that was for Jason Riley's book Maverick, which is a great book, by the way. I highly recommend you read it at some point in your Sowell journey. What I really appreciate about Maverick is that it's more of an intellectual biography of Sowell and less of a regular biography of his personal life. That appeals to me more because I am much more interested in Sowell's ideas and how they developed over time than in the details of his personal life. And you know, I think Sowell would be happy I said that. I've always gotten the sense that Thomas Sowell is an intensely private person. He's somewhat on the shy and reserved side, I feel. When I watch him being interviewed on television, he looks a little uncomfortable with the whole setting, which I can totally relate to. I'm also uncomfortable in those types of situations, so I can easily recognize that discomfort in others. One of the things I like about podcasting is that I'm not in the spotlight, and I can hide out behind this huge microphone. I met a friend the other day, and I started talking to him about Sowell, and he said, Oh, I love Sowell. I asked him, Have you read any of his books? No, he answered, I've only seen videos of him on YouTube. I told him that the true genius of Sowell lies not in his personality and glibness, but in his written words, in his books, and that what you see on YouTube is merely the tip of a very deep and massive iceberg. 
Anyway, I'll keep my ears tuned for more clips of people talking about Sowell in other podcasts, and I'll share those clips with you as I find them. Today's episode is about a different subject, however. I'd like to talk about Sowell's views on minimum wage laws. Now, I know that the subject of minimum wages is not as sexy and exciting as moral crusades or the history of slavery, which are two topics we covered in recent episodes. Talking with economists about the subject of minimum wage laws can be somewhat boring. In fact, while I was preparing for this episode, I listened to a bunch of conversations between economists on this topic, and I have to admit, I fell asleep most of the time. So why did I pick this subject if even I find it boring? I'll tell you why. Minimum wage laws are the perfect intersection of six of Sowell's key approaches to social issues. Let me explain what I mean by reading you six short, fascinating, and oftentimes funny quotes from Thomas Sowell. Here's the first quote. Much of the social history of the Western world over the past three decades has involved replacing what worked with what sounded good. Minimum wage laws are a great example of something that just sounds like a good idea. Who wants to be against a worker earning some minimum amount for his time and effort? We're not talking about people getting rich here. We're just talking about people earning some bare minimum, what some are calling a living wage, just barely enough to live on. Even I think that sounds good in theory. So what Sowell is referring to in his quote is that a common thread in Western societies is changing a practice that has been working for hundreds of years with a new practice that sounds really good, but may or may not work out better than the old system. Before there were actual minimum wage laws, there was just the metaphorical law of supply and demand. Employers paid workers as little as they could get away with. If there were people who were willing to do a good job for $1 an hour, so be it. That's what they were paid and no more. Wages were a price like any other in the market, and everyone tried to pay as little as they could for the services of others. While researching this topic, I wondered what non-economists think about minimum wage laws. I decided to start by asking some really smart people what they thought. So I walked down the street to the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech, here in sunny Pasadena, California. I approached the first 20 people I passed on campus. Here are some excerpts from those short conversations. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Um, I'm not an economist, but uh, things I've read recently suggest that new research um, suggests that they actually work and that they're worth supporting. Okay. So, but well, that, that comes from a position of being a lay, a lay economist. Well, there's a proposal right now to raise the minimum wage to $15. I'm sure you've heard. What do you think of that? You think that's enough or too high or too low? Uh, de uh, definitely a good start and a good target, and I think um, having a you know phased approach that takes us there over time seems to be worth pursuing, in my opinion. But okay. I, as I said, I'm not an economist. Right. But you? <laughs> uh, I agree absolutely. I think uh, in California, where the cost of living is particularly high, we have to all, you know always be thinking about those things. So yes, I'm agree. Staggered approach. Okay. But definitely, people need to be able to live on a minimum wage. What do you think about minimum wage laws? I'm for it. Yeah. Tell me more. 
don't have much to say. I think uh, I think it's good. I think you don't want to have uh, business owners not paying a minimum wage to employees. Second question: What do you think about minimum wage laws? I think they're very good. Important. Important for society. What do you think would be a reasonable minimum wage? It depends on the state, really. I feel. Possibly in California, I would say maybe eighteen to twenty dollars. I would agree that、uh, it varies from country to country, city to state to state, but it should be a definitely a minimum living wage,、uh, or on the average, if you look at a median wages of the country, somehow to deflate that into a minimum wage as such, or two thousand dollars a month. Do you think minimum wages cause unemployment or any negative consequences? The reasonable laureate has proven that it's not true. The research shows that not necessarily true. I don't think so. That's ideology. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about minimum wage laws? I think it's helpful in some cases, but people might take advantage most of the time, I guess, to pay you only the minimum. <laughs> Oh, so you think you think the employers might take advantage of minimum wage laws to pay people as little as possible? Exactly. Yes. I yes. see. Yes, I think it、uh, gives you security, but、uh, I believe I'm not sure. I, <laughs> it's just like my opinion. Okay. That they might take advantage. Yes, to pay you only the bare minimum. What do you think about minimum wage laws? I think minimum wage should be higher. What do you think would be a good number? Yeah, twenty dollars an hour. Yeah. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Are you for or against them? I'm for them. For them. Tell us why. Um, because I think everyone deserves to have a living wage, and you know, should should have all the resources they need to, you know, work hard and be successful. Do you think that minimum wage laws cause any sort of negative repercussions, like unemployment or anything like that? Um. I I don't know enough to maybe comment on that like in depth, but I guess overall they're a good measure. But if they're not implemented well, then yeah, they might cause issues. Okay, great, thanks. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Do you think they're a good idea?、Uh, minimum wage laws?、Um, yeah, I think that there should be a minimum wage. Yeah. Tell me more. Why?、Um, I think it's important that.、Um, People have the ability to earn a fair income.、Um, that if they put in hard work, that they will get rewarded for it. And in a way, I think it provides a form of a safety net,、um, so that、um, anyone can really earn enough to like set up a family and and make a living. Now, some people say that minimum wage laws cause unemployment. Do you think a that's true? And b, if it is true,、uh, does it matter?、Um, I don't think that.、Um, I guess I, I would need to see like I, I would need to see some kind of clear-cut evidence that、uh, minimum wage laws are causing some kind of unemployment.、Um, I, I it's, it's a topic that I'm not particularly well read on, so I, I'm not an expert. What is your specialty?、Uh, I'm a student in、uh, applied physics. Yeah. What is your opinion on minimum wage laws? Do you think they're a good idea? Minimum wage laws. You know, a law a law to set the minimum wage at a certain level. I'm not sure, frankly. Tell me more. Well, I think it's market. You know, in some sense, it's guarantee people's 
you know, income, but the other sense is that uh, increase the, the the cost of business, and you probably get less job op- opportunities. That's that's my feeling, because it's a it's a balance. I feel. Same. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. You're the first person that actually had any issue with minimum wage laws that I've been interviewing here. Well, I think you know it's kind of necessary. I I I can feel the necessary uh, unnecessary taste for some people, but in the other sense, I feel a lot of people don't get any job. Um, because of the you know the job markets cannot offer that price. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Are you for or against them? I really don't know. I mean, I, I think I have a stance, but I tell not, me. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> not sure. Okay. Second question: What do you think about minimum wage laws? Are you for or against them? I know in a state like California, uh, and you know in Southern California where housing is expensive. Um, there needs to be something uh, to allow um, service workers, in particular, to continue to be able to live in the area where you know where we need them. And I'm blessed to have you know no need for uh, minimum wage, but I know that there are a lot of people who couldn't afford to live here if they didn't have uh, you know prevailing wage from just you know competition. Some people claim that minimum wages cause unemployment. Do you think that's true? Uh, I have not heard what the arguments for and against that are, and I haven't really thought about it. So I don't think I have an opinion on that. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Are you for or against them? Um, I guess that's a difficult question because I'm more for a living wage than a minimum wage. So tell me more about that. What do you mean? Um, Well, I guess... The current minimum wage in many states isn't actually enough for people to support themselves on in a family, uh, and that's pretty, you know, difficult. And so, uh, we we would like to, I guess, help people uh, be able to support their families, even if the job isn't the most, you know, rewarding. Uh, people are just trying their best. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Do you think they're a good idea? Yeah, I would. I would dominantly say yes, because. You want everybody to make enough money to live. Do you think minimum wage laws cause unemployment? Um, I think it would probably depend on what the minimum wage was. So, How high it was. So the higher, the more likely it is to cause unemployment? The companies won't be able to afford to employ some. Yeah, like in, in theory, I think that makes sense. What do you think about minimum wage laws? Do you think they're a good idea? Uh, I do, yeah. Tell me why. Because I think that a lot of times workers are, you know, screwed over by their bosses by not being by not being paid enough by these big companies, and that the uh, that the states should have the ability and they should uh, have a livable wage uh, for workers. Okay. Do you th- now? Some people say that minimum wage laws cause unemployment. Do you think that's true? I don't think. I, I think the issue is a little more complicated than that. I don't think that they cause unemployment uh, necessarily, and I think it depends on the current state of the market. Uh, how much of the jobs are filled at a current uh, period of time. Um, but I do not think that they are necessarily the cause of unemployment, no. Okay. Some people also say that they prevent teenage employment by pricing them out of the market, uh, and that prevents teenagers from getting valuable work experience. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm actually not sure about that. I, I haven't seen anything about uh, – okay. I haven't seen any, any data on that necessarily. Okay. okay, last question. What's your specialty here at Caltech? Uh, Physics. Physics. Okay. 
I don't know if this sample of opinions is statistically representative, but it sure seems that most smart people think minimum wage laws are a very good idea. We'll explore this subject later with our guest economist on the show. Here's the second Sowell quote that is relevant to our discussion of minimum wages. Quote, Sometimes it seems as if there are more solutions than problems. On closer scrutiny, it turns out that many of today's problems are a result of yesterday's solutions. End quote. Minimum wage is a classic example of a solution in search of a problem. What exactly is the problem which the imposition of minimum wage laws is supposed to solve? Is it poverty in general? Is it homelessness? Wealth inequality? Is wealth inequality even really a problem in the true sense of the term? Or is it merely a smokescreen for the further encroachment of government into the economy? Quote number three. Life in general has never been even close to fair. So the pretense that the government can make it fair is a valuable and inexhaustible asset to politicians who want to expand government. End quote. I think that part of the underlying emotional impetus for minimum wage laws is the desire to make life more fair. On a basic human level, it just doesn't feel quite fair that me and the people I know are all paid well for our time and effort, while others at lower rungs of the economic ladder earn so little for their time. It follows that it would simply be fairer for us to set some minimum level at which people are compensated for their time. Sowell holds what he himself calls a tragic view of reality, and that life never has been fair and never will be fair, and that the idea that the government can make it fair is just a pretense to those who want to continually expand the power of government to regulate and control people's lives. Quote number four. Mystical references to society and its programs to help may warm the hearts of the gullible, but what it really means is putting more power in the hands of bureaucrats. In this quote, Sowell refers to people who believe that government programs actually help people as gullible. So while quote number three refers to people's innate desire to help others through government programs, this quote refers to people's innate gullibility to believe that government programs actually work to help people. In this context, Sowell is suggesting that minimum wage laws might make us feel good about ourselves, but they don't actually help the people they are intended to help. Quote five. Price fixing does not represent simply windfall gains and losses to particular groups, according to whether the price happens to be set higher or lower than it would be otherwise. It represents a net loss to the economy as a whole, to the extent that many transactions do not take place at all, because the mutually acceptable possibilities have been reduced. The set of options simultaneously acceptable to A and B is almost always inevitably greater than the set of options simultaneously acceptable to A, B, and C, where C is the third-party observer with force, typically the government. End quote. 
This quote is from Sowell's book, Knowledge and Decisions, which is arguably his most important work. It's a little dense, I have to admit. And I always say to friends, you don't read knowledge and decisions, you study it. But what Sowell is saying here is actually quite simple and yet profound at the same time. He's saying that when A wants to hire B at a certain wage, and B is in agreement with that wage, but C, the government, steps in and says that wage rate is not allowed, C is in effect taking away both A's and B's freedom to decide for themselves what makes them better off than they would be without the transaction. And that this reduction in options makes not just A and B poorer, but the whole society worse off as well. Quote number six is actually two separate quotes I combined about a very important subject, compassion. Although the big word on the left is compassion, the big agenda on the left is dependency. No matter how much people on the left talk about compassion, they have no compassion for the taxpayers. End quote. I suspect that the issue of compassion is a key driver behind the widespread belief in minimum wage laws. Compassion for the low-wage earner. The people who do not get a job because of high minimum wages, we don't see those people. They're hidden among the roles of the unemployed. The jobs which get eliminated because of minimum wage laws, we don't see those either because they're, well, they're not there to be seen. I could do an entire episode about this subject of compassion, and I think I will sometime. But for now, let me just say this. If you really have compassion for the poor, for the handicapped, for the weakest members of society, and I do have lots of compassion for them, then you should advocate for and support policies which have a proven track record of helping those people the most. As Sowell often points out, capitalism and free markets, or as he calls it, a price-coordinated society, have lifted more people out of poverty than any other system in human history. So truly compassionate people support policies which enable people to lift themselves out of poverty and oppose policies which sound great on paper but do little to advance human flourishing in the real world. So there you have it, six Sowell quotes which enable us to reframe the way we approach concepts like minimum wage laws and to analyze what's really going on behind the scenes of policies like these. To help us analyze Sowell's framework for understanding the intellectual context of minimum wage laws, I've invited a special guest on the show today. His name is Jonathan Meir, and he is a professor of economics at Texas A&M University. He has devoted significant energy to studying minimum wage laws and their actual effects on society. Before we bring him on, let me quickly summarize Sowell's description of the effects of minimum wage laws on society. In his 1980 book, Basic Economics, Sowell has a chapter about minimum wage laws, wherein he summarizes his views on the subject. In the show notes of this episode, I will provide a link to the full chapter so you can read it for yourself, which I recommend you do. Of course, always read Sowell in his own words and don't rely on my interpretation. In this chapter, 
Sowell makes the following seven key points. Number one, minimum wage laws are always discussed in terms of how they benefit those who receive the higher wages, and those who become unemployed because of those laws are ignored. Sowell says, quote, minimum wage laws are in fact beneficial to those workers who continue to be employed, those who are on the inside looking out, but at the expense of the unemployed who are on the outside looking in, end quote. Number two, Sowell examines the evidence and concludes conclusively that minimum wage laws do in fact increase unemployment throughout society. Sowell admits that honest differences of opinion do exist among economists as to whether or not minimum wage laws really do increase unemployment. But Sowell himself does believe that they do, and that this belief is the majority opinion in the field, according to Sowell. Number three, minimum wage laws hurt the young and inexperienced most of all, because those laws make them less attractive to employers and that this prevents them from acquiring the job skills and experience which would make them more productive. Number four, labor unions typically support minimum wage laws, not because their members earn anywhere close to the minimum wage rate, but because these laws help keep younger, less skilled workers from competing for their union jobs. Number five, Sowell also discusses the phenomenon in third world countries where first world countries unilaterally decide to pay workers in those third world countries some artificially high minimum wage, simply in the interest of fairness. Sowell concludes that those nations are not on net balance helped by such practices, but rather suffer under them. Number six. Sowell points out that members of unpopular racial and ethnic groups are hurt most by minimum wage laws. Why? Because minimum wage laws make it cheaper to discriminate against minority workers than it would be in a free market. Number seven, Sowell points out that laws designed to improve working conditions in various industries have the same effect as minimum wage laws in increasing unemployment. In addition, Sowell makes the claim that better working conditions leads to lower pay for workers, since the money for better conditions has to come from somewhere. So now that I've summarized Sowell's views on the real-world consequences of minimum wage laws, let's bring in our expert, Professor Jonathan Meir, to help us untangle some of these issues. Dr. Meir received his bachelor's degree in economics from Princeton University and his PhD from Stanford. He's been a professor at Texas A&M University since 2009 and was tenured there in 2014. He is now the Mary Julia and George R. Jordan Professor of Public Policy in the Economics Department and was recently awarded the University Professorship for Undergraduate Teaching Excellence. He teaches an online Principles of Microeconomics course that reaches nearly 3,000 undergraduates per year. Jonathan Meir, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thanks for having me, Alan. My pleasure. So I'm so glad you came on the show because I really want to talk with you about minimum wage laws. I know you know a lot about this subject. I went out to Caltech, as you just heard, and I just stopped the first 20 people. 
who I found. I figured these would be very well-educated, very high IQ people. And they all seem to think the same thing, which is that minimum wage laws are a really good idea. Uh, there was only one gentleman who had his doubts. He felt that it uh, might cause unemployment. So he wasn't so sure if they were a good idea, that they would limit opportunities for people. Other people seemed very, very sure of this. And, you know, one of the things that I, in my introduction to our discussion, I pointed out, one of the quotes from Thomas Sowell was, much of the social history of the Western world over the past three decades has involved replacing what worked with what sounded good. And when I wrote that, when I, when I quoted that, I suspected that this is one of those ideas that just sound really good. And I think my experience at the Caltech uh, campus confirmed that, that to most people, minimum wage laws sound like a really, really good idea. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's clear from the way those folks answered your question that they really do uh, sort of follow that mode of thinking because they didn't say that they thought minimum wages were a good idea. They thought it was important to reduce poverty and to alleviate poverty, which is the real issue. Uh, and the minimum wage has always been a distraction from the real issue of reducing poverty. And so I thought it was actually very telling, and those were obviously very intelligent people you were talking to, um, that they skipped over this really important causal step. Because they said, yes, I think minimum wage laws are important because I think it's really necessary for someone to have uh, enough to live off of. And so this has always been the way that I've thought about the minimum wage, or at least the way I've been thinking about the minimum wage since I started working on it, which is that it's the wrong answer to a really important question and one on which many people do agree, which is the importance of providing some basic level of living standard to people. It does not follow from that agreement that the right way to do so is with a mandated minimum wage. So what you're addressing actually gets to the point, the, the quote that I made uh, from Sowell, or that I, I, I quoted from Sowell, where, you know, where I questioned what exactly is the problem that the imposition of minimum wage laws is supposed to solve? Uh, I was, you know, really asking the question because I, I legitimately don't know, you know, is it poverty in general? Is it wealth inequality? Is it homelessness? You know, what exactly is the problem? So you're saying that what it, what should be the problem is how to reduce poverty, but you're you're skeptical that people really look at it that way. I think that's that's a reasonable assessment. So it, it's it certainly is not going to do anything for a meaningful level of wealth inequality. But I do think that the people are, for the most part, kind and, and want to help others. And this is the easiest sounding lever to pull. Some people don't get paid very much. Let's make employers pay them more. Okay, let, let, let's take a step back for a second. I, I, you know, I have a ton of things I want to ask you about that. But just tell us, tell the audience and me a little bit about your experience studying minimum wage laws. What, how deep have you dug into this topic? So quite deeply. So I began working on this some years back with uh, my student 
now a professor at UC Santa Cruz, Jeremy West. And Jeremy and I were a bit confused by the existing state of the literature, which was looking for this sort of snap to a new equilibrium of the sort that we teach to students in a principles of microeconomics class. That is, uh, when you impose a uh, uh, price floor, that is a minimum wage, for example, in this case, a uh, level below which you can't pay people, then uh, you have excess supply, uh, it exceeds demand, and then you get uh, unemployment. And so the type of, of empirical approach that was being used was of the sort that David Cardinal and Kruger used, which was essentially look for a very rapid change in the employment level. But there are so many reasons to think that that's not the way the world really works, other than anticipatory effects, the fact that these minimum wage changes were fairly small, they were known in advance, they were usually phased in over a number of years, even when they were a bit larger. And employers have a lot of levers they can pull other than firing somebody. Um, firing people is costly, it's unpleasant. You know, Dilbert cartoons aside, bosses don't enjoy laying people off It's because they're human. And uh, it's bad for morale. There's all sorts of reasons why you would think that firing people would be literally the last thing that employers try to do. And, and there's been some great work looking at, for example, um, how capital can substitute for labor, which is another thing that can't happen very quickly in these kinds of situations. So we began with the idea that um, these models were ill-suited to pick up longer run effects. And as it turns out, one of the things that we helped spark, and thankfully people who are much better at econometrics than we are, kind of took this ball and ran with it, was that these, these models were sort of mechanically ill-suited to picking up these effects. Now, that's not a very interesting discussion for us to go down, so, so let's leave it aside. But the upshot is we tried using uh, an empirical approach that was better suited to picking up medium to long-run effects. And what we found was very little in the way of these rapid short-run effects, which is sort of the the uh, where everyone was looking, the joke about uh, the economist looks for his keys under the, uh, the economist looks at this question for the same reason that the drunk looks for his keys under the lamppost, because that's where the light is. Um, and what we found was when you looked at this in the longer run and you took these kinds of dynamic effects seriously, you did find negative effects uh, and, and fairly substantial ones. And then pushing right unemployment on unemployment. So that was when we were just we were just looking at employment, and most of the action really seemed to be through the hiring margin. So it's not that people were fired; it's that they were never hired in the first place. Or when there was turnover, you know, uh, ten people leave, and the company only hires nine to replace them. And in the longer run, some work by uh, by Isaac Sorkin, who's at Stanford, has found that um, establishments when they go out of business tend to get replaced with ones that use more capital. So, uh, or, or even push the, some of the labor onto customers themselves. So, you know, I think when you and I were younger, there was a lot less in the way of counter serve. Uh, and there certainly weren't a whole lot of ordering kiosks and that's become much more common. Now, of course, that's not entirely due to the minimum wage. I, I would never, Beware the monocausal explanation, but um, certainly increasing the price of low-skill labor means that in the long run, less low-skill labor will be used. And so one of the things that I found in my work with Jeff Clemens at UC San Diego and Lisa Khan, who's now at Rochester, was in fact employers 
started upskilling in their job postings. So they were much more likely to ask for a high school degree. And what we found was that that was even true for the same job at the same company across different states. And so even for the same occupation at the same company, if one state had a higher minimum wage than another, that company was more likely on average to ask for for example, a high school degree in the face of that higher minimum wage. Right. Okay. So, so really what you're, what you're saying is that you've looked into this and you believe based on the data that higher minimum wages lead to less employment, fewer job opportunities, uh, diverting uh, companies divert their cap towards capital solutions to labor problems instead of hiring more people, et cetera, et cetera. So let me, let me ask you this question, though, and, and, and I'm a layperson. I have not really looked into the data, but I do think about this from a very common sense point of view. You know, sometimes you hear about a study that was done. It was a three-year, $10 million study, and they come up with a conclusion, and you say to yourself, I can't believe they, need to they needed to actually study that. To me, that is so obvious. Like, we just determined after a three-year study that, you know, dogs and cats have different temperaments. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like every sane person knows that just from experience. So my question is, how can anybody even doubt that higher minimum wages lead to less employment? To me, it seems so intuitively obvious that I can't believe that you could find an intelligent person that doubts that. So, so before you even respond to that, here's the thought experiment that I, I wanted, I'd like to do with you if you're open to this. If we raise the minimum wage to $200 an hour, is there any economist that would doubt that that would eliminate jobs? Probably not. So, right? so no, I don't think that you could find anyone who okay. would, would make that argument. Okay. So, so what about $199.99? Yeah. So I see, I see where you're going with see this. See where I'm going, right? Common, yeah. So, this is a common argument. So is, is, there, is, there, is there something wrong with this logic? I mean, is there some dollar amount at which the, uh, you know, the unemployment causing effect of minimum wages completely vanishes? Well, so I would, I would say um, yes, because I think that wages are determined by supply and demand for the most part. And I want to return to that point in just a bit of, of why some economists might believe this or might push on this. Um, and if you set a minimum wage below that level, as I explained to the students in my principal's class, then then it won't have any effect. You know, if the, so the prevailing wage is $7 an hour, if no one will work for less than $7 an hour because their outside opportunities are, are preferable to that, then setting a, a minimum wage at $5 an hour won't have any effect because it doesn't bar anyone from the labor market. Um, and that, you know, is, is mechanically true when you look at a supply and demand uh, supply and demand graph. But if we take this, let's let's take uh, the most charitable possible explanation. So, um, and let's start with the 35,000 foot view, which was, you know, why would anyone study this stuff? And I think that, you know, we can, we can come up with, with kind of silly things, but I will sometimes joke that economics is the study of post obvious. Uh, and sometimes things that are obvious in hindsight, you know, sometimes you, you see this when someone wins a Nobel prize, um, you know, people will say, well, this is such an obvious finding. I'm like, well, it wasn't in 1977 
when this person came up with this idea. And there were a lot, you could, you can point to a lot of the literature from the 60s and early 70s that was making the opposite argument. And the reason that it seems so obvious to you now is because all we've taught for the last 40 years is, is this thing that this person came up with that now seems so ingrained in our understanding. Um, I do think it's important to test theories. Uh, you know, even, even the theory of gravity got tested and it, it, does break down under some under some conditions, but there are kind of two. Let's say let's say two and a half theoretical reasons why the minimum wage wouldn't have an effect on employment, which does not necessarily mean that it doesn't have an effect on worker well-being. And I'll I'll come back to that one at the end. That's sort of a half a reason. So the first and most common one is is what's called monopsony power, which is that is that employers have a lot of power. Uh, over setting wages. And so the standard economics models generally take, um, uh, think of most people as, as price takers. So if everyone is paying $9 an hour, then you have to pay $9 an hour. You can't pay $8.75 or else no one will come work for you. Uh, so you and, and so this is where you get this argument that uh, uh, which you know we could sketch out on a whiteboard if we had one in front of us, that a well-set minimum wage can actually increase and that, that, that's true in the case of this very simple model. Uh, so is there actually monopsony power in the low-skill labor force? So, you know, the, the example that we usually give to students is, you know, the company town where you have no choice but to work for the coal mine if you live in this town. And that's not a very realistic example. And so, of course, people over the last decades have thought of more interesting examples, like the fact that um, certainly you wouldn't switch jobs if you found out that someone was paying, you know, one cent more per hour. Um, there are these search frictions and these search frictions can create some amount of holdup. And, and that's, that's very true. And that does allow employers some amount of market power. You know that all your workers won't quit if they find out that the Burger King a mile away pays 15 cents an hour or more because they have to spend time finding that job and applying for it and then coming up, you know, uh, new inside jokes with their coworkers and so on. So this is a very interesting model of labor force. I don't want to denigrate the model at all. The question is, does it hold in any meaningful sense in the low-skill labor market. And I think when you look at turnover rates, uh, it sure doesn't seem like it. Uh, and this is this is the flip side of the reductio ad absurdum that you laid out of, you know, what if we started with a $200 an hour wage? Because they say, well, what if the McDonald's down the street paid a penny more? Would everyone leave? No. Okay, well, what if it was two pennies more? Would everyone leave? No. Okay, well, then clearly employers have market power. So I don't find this argument very convincing because low-skill labor by its very nature, its very definition, is fungible across occupations and sectors. So if you mop the floors in a McDonald's, you can sweep the floors in an office building. You can probably do something like pick up trash. You can um, work in any number of different industries and occupations. And many of the empirical papers that have found evidence of market power in this case are looking, are defining market power over the labor market as concentration in the output market. So they say, well, there's only one Walmart in this town, which means Walmart has a lot of market power over the type of people who work in retail trade, or sorry, they have a lot of market power over workers in retail trade. And you might say, okay, sure, but they don't have market power over the type of people who work in retail trade, because those people can also man a cash register in a restaurant. Um, or they can, you know, they can sweep floors in an office building, and that's a different industry. It's a different occupation code. So I don't find these arguments convincing at all. Now that is the most common argument. And let me pause there because I've got one and a half more to go through, and I don't want to just keep talking. 
So which argument did you, I'm a little confused. Which argument did you not find compelling? The, the two going from 200 down? I mean, what, what was it that you were saying? I don't find that compelling. Oh, so I don't find the I don't find the I don't find the reductio ad absurdum argument of the two hundred dollar minimum wage as being particularly useful because that's not what anyone's discussing. Uh, and people people are saying things like, well, if you raise the minimum wage from twelve dollars an hour to fifteen dollars an hour, we're still in this part of the cost curve where if you believe in monopsony power for firms, then employment might actually go up. Uh, and so that that's the argument that for the most part these people are making uh and and I don't find that very compelling but it's 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 a very different argument than saying well why not 50 because then you're no longer on this part where you know the the monopsonist might actually increase the amount of labor that they employ um okay, okay so so the the intelligent people on the other side of this argument have a complicated theory that, Alan, we agree with you. If you go too high with the minimum wage, you're going to cut employment, but we can figure out exactly how high to go so that we not only don't create more unemployment, we may even be creating less unemployment. Is that is that a fair summary? That is. That is. It's a well-set minimum wage is the line that you always see in these, uh, in, in, in these proposals. I see. Okay. So, so if I if if I can move on to sort of the next reason, which which I also don't find very compelling, in large part because I studied it. Um, okay. So the argument with this is that is is that a higher minimum wage will lead to more entry into the labor force by people who currently look at these low skill jobs and say, well, it's not worth it to me to work for seven twenty five, but if it was nine. I would enter the labor force and I am um, productive enough that employers would benefit by a sufficient amount to not reduce their labor. Uh, and so while this certainly suggests, let me add a coda to that. It also means that the value of searching for a job is higher. And so employers might create better matches with their employees, which leads to sort of more surplus to share, that the employer gets more productivity and the employee gets more money. So um, the first thing to notice from this is that it has very strong implications for who gets employed, which is, of course, something that Thomas Sowell emphasized quite a bit in terms of experience, in terms of people who are perhaps discriminated against in the market. Um, it, it has very strong implications and probably not in the direction we'd like it to. Um, the second thing is that this is a testable hypothesis. Do people search more or enter the labor market in response to um, a higher minimum wage? And I uh, tackled this question with two brilliant young economists, uh, Carly Will Sloan, who's now an assistant professor at Claremont Graduate University. She, she had been a PhD student at Texas A&M. And um, Camilla Adams, who is a PhD student at Brown, who had been an undergrad at Texas A&M. And we found um, no evidence of entry into the labor force and some very compelling evidence of a very short-lived spike in search effort in the month of the minimum wage. So people do search harder if they were already searching, but it's very short-lived and couldn't possibly lead to the sorts of conclusions that are, would be derived from this sort of search effort response of, of the minimum wage. So that's explana theoretical explanation number two. 
Okay. Good. Okay. So I, I can, and I can understand those. They, those make sense to me. Um, and you're sort of convincing me that it, it's not as uh, tautological as I may have thought when we started this conversation um, and that it might need some empirical investigation. Is there a third argument for the belief that minimum wage laws might actually make things better in the so, employment market? So the, the answer to that or the, the, the reason that I'm going to give is no to the question that you, that you just posed but yes to it doesn't necessarily reduce employment. And so this was the subject of another paper that I worked on with Jeff Clemens and Lisa Kahn. Uh, and um, actually the, the theoretical model that underlies it, we discovered after Jeff had sort of put together this beautiful model actually dates back to the late seventies and early eighties, which is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, we could talk about a 1915 written by two young women who work for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who did some very sophisticated analysis Honestly, I would argue more sophisticated than the famed Cardin Kruger paper, except they did it almost 70 years before uh, in response to uh, Oregon's minimum wage law that had been passed in 1915. But let's set, set that aside for the moment. Uh, so the question is, as I, as, I, as I alluded to before, employers have a lot of levers that they can pull. A job is not just, do you have it, yes or no, and how much does it pay you? And it, it is mediocre and unimaginative economics to think that. So what are some of the margins that employers can adjust that would often not get picked up in the sort of data that economists are looking at under the lamppost? Uh, hours of work is one of them. And in fact, Katja Jardim and Jake Victor and the rest of the Seattle Minimum Wage Project team, because Washington State does keep hours of work data, in their unemployment insurance system, they found that the hours of work response was much larger than the what we call the extensive margin, whether or not you actually do have a job. So right there, right away, you would get the answer wrong if you don't look at, at this, uh, this hours margin. But even that is part of, you know, do you, do you have uh, uh, 32 hours worth of shifts or do you have 40 hours worth of shifts? And, you know, you could pick that up with, with some amount of data. But what else might you not pick up? What, what Jeff Lisa and I found was that uh, employers can cut back on benefits. And now generally these low wage jobs are not the ones you think of when you think of jobs that have benefits, but especially after the Affordable Care Act, uh, nearly half of jobs in these very low wage occupations actually had health benefits. And then they, they, they also often also have other benefits that are much harder to pick up on in, uh, in a uh, administrative data set. Like uh, when I was in college and I worked at a, as a bartender at a restaurant bar, I would get a free meal with every shift. Now, they, they don't have to do that. When you're a college kid, that's actually, you know, it's worth something to you. Uh, and so they can do things like uh, not give you free parking in an employee parking lot. There's just a lot of these levers that can be pulled. And what we found in our paper in this measurable component of health benefits was actually a non-trivial amount of the value of the wage increase was clawed back just through this health insurance margin. And so is it going to be 100%? No, but some of it is going to come back. Now, if you're a w worker who prefers the mix of wages and benefits that you're currently getting, including benefits like flexibility of the job, then you are worse off 
if your employer shifts to a mix of that, that, that has more emphasis on wages and less emphasis on these other things. And to me, flexibility is one of the most important ones because I, as a professor, value flexibility enormously in my job. And very often you might see someone who is uh, maybe a parent of a young child or they have preferences that lead them to want to do things on Friday afternoons and they negotiate probably a lower wage than they otherwise could have gotten in exchange for, hey, every other Friday I need to leave at 2 p.m. because my kid has this thing that I need to help them do. And so often the minimum wage is couched as this, we're giving workers more bargaining power, but it's actually just the opposite because some workers might want to bargain for lower wages, but greater flexibility or more benefits or different working conditions. And by saying, well, no, everyone gets the same wage, the employer might say, look, I can't give you both the higher wage and these extra flexible, this extra flexibility, this uh, more generous health plan, whatever, whatever it might be. Now, is this true for everyone at all times? No, we think on the margin, there are certainly some people who are going to be affected by this and they will be made worse off by this. But it's one of the reasons why we might not see changes in employment, especially in the short term, because employers will use these other margins of adjustment that they have cracking down on absenteeism, cracking down on lateness, other things that maybe make the job a little less pleasant to do and might make some workers better, excuse me, worse off, despite the fact that they're getting better wages. So really what you're, what you're addressing is, is that there are a lot of trade-offs. This is something that Sowell always says, there are no solutions in life, there are only trade-offs. And you're pointing out that minimum wage laws have trade-offs in terms of capital investment by companies, elimination of certain jobs, uh, number of hours worked, um, the benefits. Are there any other trade-offs that these, well, I mean, one, one trade-off I really want to talk about is the move away from teenage employment, because I have a very, very strong views on this. Um, so can we, do you mind if we shift gears to that teen, teenage employment? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So when I was 13 years old, my mother said to me, Alan, you're getting a job. And we left the house, we walked around, we went from store to store, do you need any help? And the first guy that said yes was a pharmacy. Uh, the next day I was there working for 2.35 an hour, which was the minimum wage at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And I was stocking the shelves. And every day after school, I would go there and I'd put the shampoo on the shelf, I'd put the uh, mouthwash on the shelf, you know, whatever was needed. I'd go around with a notebook. I'd look at, we need three more scopes. We need two more crests, et cetera, et cetera. I'd go down to the storeroom. I'd bring it up. So that became the first of a series of jobs that I had. I was a, an ice cream scooper at a Haagen-Dazs. I was a stock boy at an electronics store. During the summers, I worked as a cabana boy at a pool. I mean, to me, working was just a normal part of growing up. And I look back on those jobs as being a key, key factor in my career success. They taught me so much about working with people, showing up on time, being courteous, helping people, going the extra mile. I mean, I can't even possibly overestimate how important and how nostalgic I look back uh, at those jobs. Um, and I feel like 
That doesn't happen anymore. No employer in their right mind is going to hire a 13-year-old boy. Why would I'm not they... even sure they can do it legally. Even if, even if they could, theoretically, I know that there are certain jobs 13-year-old boys can do, maybe like baby, a babysitter for an eight-year-old or things like that, but, or a dog walker maybe. But apart from the legal issue, there's no incentive to hire someone like that. You're just going to have to put up with a lot of nonsense as an employer because how many 13-year-olds are responsible or know what they're doing or, you know, and that's really when you're, just developing your um, your habits. And uh, it makes me sad to think that, you know, kids nowadays just don't, will not have that opportunity. And there are many kids, and you probably know this better than I do, who show up in college and they've never worked. So that is that is uh, very true. For, fortunately, at Texas A&M, uh, I want to just praise my students. The students tend to have good work ethic. I don't know if that's a Texas thing or a Texas, probably a Texas A&M thing. Um, so I, I will say what I'm going to, I'm going to sort of give you the exception that, that, uh, that, that proves your rule a little bit, uh, which, but it, it makes a very important point, which is that uh, labor market conditions really are set by supply and demand. And that is the um, uh, news item I saw recently that an Oregon McDonald's was advertising to hire 14 and 15 year olds because they were so shorthanded that they were, and that's at Oregon's minimum wage. So, which is, which is into double digits at this point, I think. And so at that point, the manager or the owner, the franchisee had looked at the situation and said, we literally need a pair of hands here. They will be useful enough, even at this inflated wage that we will hire a 14 or 15 year old. And this, this, when I wouldn't call it viral, but maybe viral by the standards of interesting economic uh, labor economics examples, um, and and to me, what it says, well, you know, that's that's what happens when uh, supply of low skill labor is so limited, and you know, demand for things like fast food is high enough as people start leaving their homes that that it is worth it to hire a fourteen or fifteen year old. Um, and and I saw a sign in in Utah this summer, McDonald's was hiring at eighteen dollars an hour in Moab, Utah. Um, no one's making them do that. It's it's supply and demand. Uh, teenage employment has fallen off a cliff in the last fifteen or twenty years. It is not the entirely entirely the minimum wage. It is uh, a, at least a substantial portion of it. I think is parental desire to have their children do other things. Um, probably viewing it as being more um, meaningful for college. Uh, I think the. Um, value we should we should take people's preferences seriously as video games have gotten better the value of goofing off is higher uh you know the value of leisure time in in is higher when you have these immersive you know super immersive games though you know we we like the arcade too when we were kids so um it absolutely does i think shift the you know teenage employment is one of the first margins that that people really look at um that said this is really more a story about inexperienced or low skill employment, which is obviously very correlated with, um, with being young. But my uh, co-author, Jeff Clemens, who I've mentioned, has some really interesting work demonstrating, for example, that the um, distribution of wages for teenagers is, is actually sort of higher than the distribution of wages for 
adult high school dropouts. I may, I apologize to Jeff if I'm misstating his finding, but one of the things that he pointed out in one of his earlier minimum wage papers was that um, just kind of reflexively looking at teenage employment was probably missing where the action really was, which is about not necessarily having that skill set or that experience set, which again, of course, is highly correlated with being a teenager. Um, but at this point, you know, barring those McDonald's in Oregon, basically 14 and 15 year olds are essentially not in the labor force. And very often when you talk about teenage employment or you talk about teenage employment numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, what you're often talking about are 18 and 19 year olds who are either college students with a job or um, high school dropouts who are, you know, or even high school graduates who are 19 years old. And so when I play with these data recreationally, because that's the sort of thing an economics professor does, uh, I always am always very careful to separate out the the current population survey, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics sort of workhorse um, labor survey will ask, are you currently enrolled in high school or college? And looking at those numbers separately is really important when you're talking about teenage employment, because a 17-year-old high school student is very different than a 17-year-old dropout. And a 19-year-old, not someone who's 19 but not enrolled in college, has a very different labor force participation profile than a 19-year-old who is doing their summer job. Okay, let me let me circle back uh, to something that Thomas Sowell said um, in, in my introduction to to our conversation. I I quoted five Thomas Sowell quotes. Um, one was about replacing what worked with what sounded good. Uh, the second one was about um, more. There are more solutions than problems in the world, and that a lot of today's problems are a result of yesterday's solutions. Um, a third one was about try, government trying to make life fair is just an excuse for them expanding government power. Um, and the fourth one, yeah, also re related to it, but talking about gullibility, people believe that these programs work, they're gullible, and that also puts more power in the hands of bureaucrats. Given your intense study of minimum wage, is, is Sobel on the mark here? Is this... You know, in, in episode three of this podcast, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it. I talked about moral crusades. And I talked about how a lot of the crusades, that, I'm going to share my screen with you right now because I want you to see something. Sowell identified 11 characteristics of moral crusades. Uh, do you see that on your screen? I do. Yeah. Okay. And that, I, I talked about these in, in episode 11. And I, I'm... I'm I'm starting to get the feeling like the desire for minimum wage laws and to raise the minimum wage is in a way yet another moral crusade. And so let, let's talk about a couple of these. And I think some of these are really illustrated in the short interviews I had with people in uh, on the campus of Caltech. So number one, crusades always frame issues as a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. So there was one fellow I talked to who said it prevents employers from screwing over their employees. So th that that seems to me to apply here. You know, the employers are bad. They try to screw people over. Uh, and we need to be on the side of the good people, the employees. Uh, that apply Number two also seems to apply. Like there's a villain to oppose. And th that's the employers, right? The employers in this 
uh, you know, drama are the uh, villains. And I mean, I, I could go on, but, it, you know, and, and, and the listeners of this podcast can go to slide number 14 of TomSoul.com and, and find this slide. Um, from your experience, you know, just studying this, is, is there a moral crusade aspect to minimum wage mania? I think I think so. Uh, I think so. And I think that you see it in a lot of the the behavior that it is couched as a as a, you know, good employees versus bad employers. And I always make this point. I don't employ, you know, I, I don't run a McDonald's franchise. I don't there's no skin off my nose to do this. If, if I thought that this was a positive move for low income people, I would be very inclined to support it because I do care deeply about poverty. I, I oppose it because it's bad policy. And it's so often framed as like, well, for the pro-business perspective, let's go talk to this economist. Well, that's not it at all. I'm not pro-business. I'm pro-markets. I'm pro-freedom. I'm pro-human flourishing. And I think that this policy prevents that. I also think you see it in these in in the the way that it is. You know, we talked about a well-set minimum wage. Okay. Well, how did we get how did we get fifteen an hour? How do we get 15? Why is 15 the right number? Why is 15 the right number in College Station, Texas, and Pasadena, California, and Manhattan, and San Francisco? Um, well, it, I was paying very close attention to this. So um, the, the President Obama came out and said that, that at the time they picked 1010. So why 1010? Well, it's catchy and easy to remember. And those, those words came out of the president's mouth. And good, for once we got some honesty about you know, how these policies are created. I think if we encourage politicians to be honest about how these policies are created, maybe we'll get more honesty out of them. Um, and then very briefly, there was like a three-month span where the correct number, and I'm making air quotes here, the correct number was 12. But, but 12 isn't very catchy. Um, you know, 12 doesn't alliterate. I, I'm sorry, we could have gotten fight for 14. But but 15 is is uh, despite being odd, it's it's a rounder number. So you fight for 15, right? It really rolls off the tongue. And and I honestly believe that that is the entirety of the science that went into this. Was you get a hashtag, you get you know, you get a, a catchy slogan, you get a, a identifiable villain. Um, and the weirdest thing about this is, you know, people are like, oh, these big employers who don't care. But there is this very well-documented positive relationship between the size of an employer and the, uh, the, the wages that it pays. Big employers pay more. And it may be because it is less pleasant to work for a big employer. And so they have to compensate you, you know, to work in a Walmart is maybe less fun than to work with your buddies, you know, stocking shelves in a local hardware store. Maybe, I don't know. That's one possible reason that's been posited, but especially since that big Walmart is much more easily able to absorb this wage increase, you always have to wonder why does Walmart support a higher minimum wage? Why does Amazon support a higher minimum wage? Well, because it drives their competition out of business. You know what, what? It's so weird to me that that you know some folks on 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 the left will look at this and say, "Well, Walmart and Amazon are evil, except for this one time where where they're on my side and they support this policy I support." Maybe you should ask, "Why are they supporting this policy?" Well, if it drives Joe Hardware, Joe's Hardware, out of business, then you know more folks will shop at Walmart, and Walmart can get by with forty four associates rather than 45 associates. And yeah, their labor costs will go up a little bit, but you know, they'll, they'll cut some people's hours a bit and they'll, you know, they won't hire someone to replace bill when bill leaves. And, you know, maybe they, they 
they charge you for your uniform now or something else. But believe me, they are going to make as much money as they possibly can. That is very difficult to fit on a bumper sticker. Whereas hashtag fight for 15 just, you know, rolls off the tongue or the keyboard for Twitter. Let's circle back to, um, you know, to that original point that I was trying to get at, which, 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 what problem exactly are minimum wage laws, laws trying to solve? And you were talking about poverty in general. And I, I guess my question for you, is, and this is a point that Sowell often makes. He says, what one fact that I always found interesting that he made is that the average poor person in America has more square footage of living space than the average person in Europe. And then he would talk about how the average poor person has a cell phone, has a large screen television, has an internet account, has a car, has a, and, and when you, you know, is there really, I guess my, my, my main question is, is there really enough poverty in America that we need to make such sweeping laws in an attempt to ameliorate it or you know, it, because there's always going to be, no matter how wealthy a society is, there's always going to be someone in the bottom 10%. But like, like when I go to the, like when I go to the movies, for example, I am just shocked at the number of people who line up to pay $10 for a bucket of popcorn. And I will, I refuse to pay that kind of money for a bucket of popcorn and I can afford it because I just draw the line somewhere. But it seems to me like, is there really poverty? in our country to such an extent that we have to have these kind of programs? Am, am I completely delusional on this subject? So I would say it's a, that's a, a complicated and multifaceted question. So let me, let me try to tackle it one piece at a time and hopefully I'll remember everything that I want to tackle. So the first is that it is absolutely true that someone who is uh, in deep poverty in the United States is still relative to the entire world in the very in the in the top quintile for sure the top 20% relative to the sweep of history in probably the top 1%. That said, it does not mean that their lives are easy or pleasant. And we know that humans redefine well-being in terms of the things that that they had. Whenever I read a piece, I'm reading a wonderful book right now um, that takes place in late 1930s New York. And it's so fascinating for me to take a step back. And this has nothing to do with the book. The book isn't about technological progress or anything else. Uh, but it's it's so fascinating for me to take a step back and think, you know, the innovations that had come around in the previous 10 or 15 years, widespread use of the automobile, must have seemed so amazing to those people Whereas now they just, they are just part of our background. And if anything, you know, they're, they're kind of annoying and, you know, we want electric cars that accelerate zero to 60 faster than any race car from 30 years ago could have done and, and are affordable and quiet and clean and everything else. So poverty to some extent is defined relatively. And even if you disagree with that assessment, and some people do, I think it's not very useful because so many people define poverty relatively. People will say things like internet is a human right. We can laugh at that all we want, but frankly, it is functionally impossible to, to, you know, to operate in the modern world without access to the internet. You know, it's, you, you, you can't go down to the office and get a piece of paper to fill out. You know, I mean, you can, you can go down to the library and use it, use the internet there. But I think that it's worth taking these things 
seriously, if not literally. I don't actually believe that access to internet is a human right. Um, I, I think that's a very silly definition of what a human right is. Uh, but it's worth taking that notion of relative poverty seriously. I think the other really important thing to consider is even if you believe, as I do, that adults are primarily responsible for their own well-being and that if they choose to make bad decisions, the, the consequences of that falls on them, I have a very difficult time stomaching the notion that a child is responsible for the circumstances <clears throat> into which he or she was born. And one of my, when I, when I say that I worry about poverty, I don't want anyone to starve to death in the streets, even if they have made terrible decisions. I am much more concerned about a child having enough food to eat, about uh, a child having access to a reasonably good education. And that is some place where I'm willing to accept a lot more inefficiency. Uh, for example, I don't know that the school lunch programs are a particularly efficient way to deliver food to kids. I'm willing to accept the you know handful of billions of dollars that the school lunch program has that you know I think one of the better policies during the pandemic was the fact that they handed out food in most places because for many children that is that is the only meal of a, the day that they get. I think one can make the argument that you know that's that's just too bad. I think that is a very, very difficult, even if you believe that, which I don't, and I certainly, Alan, I'm not suggesting that you do. Um, even if you believe that, I think that is an argument where you start to turn off like 99% of the public. And what I look for are what are the most efficient ways to alleviate true poverty, but much more importantly, what are the best ways to create mobility? Uh, and allow people, especially children who were born into circumstances over which they had no control, to allow those children to grow up into an, adults who have a chance. And I believe that the minimum wage makes all of those things more difficult because poor people in America are poor because they are unemployed, not because they are employed at low wages. Okay, so let's... Uh switch gears from poverty to wealth inequality is part of the driver for minimum wage mania a desire to solve in air quotes the problem of wealth inequality and is there do we even really have a problem of wealth inequality i mean can it really be called a problem in any true sense of the word um before you answer like like the way i look at it is you know Mark Zuckerberg could have as many private jets as he want. He could have a hundred. He could have a thousand houses. It doesn't affect me. Why would I care how much the top 1% has as long as my life is good? What does the inequality have to do with anything as long as things are trending in the right direction for me? So I wonder, you know, I, I, I hear wealth inequality almost on a daily basis. What exactly is the problem? with wealth inequality. So let's start with the minimum wage aspect of that first. I think people would answer yes to your question, but only because they reflexively think inequality bad, minimum wage good. The, the number of dollars involved are just not very large. They almost certainly don't come from 
the people in the top 1% of the wealth distribution. And, and we should be careful to separate wealth and income uh, in, in these cases, because there are one of my favorite acronyms in this literature is Henry, high income, not rich yet. So if you're thinking like a 33-year-old lawyer who uh, you know has only been working for a couple of years, they still have a lot of law school debt. On paper, they probably have negative wealth because they are carrying high school, uh, not high school debt, law school debt, of course, uh, but they are earning a quarter million dollars or more per year. They are a high earner, not rich yet. So they would be very high in the income distribution, but not in the wealth distribution. And the wealth distribution is heavily driven by age. And it's heavily driven by assumptions you make about, say, the value of Social Security, right? If Social Security is an annuity, should we price it as such, at which point wealth inequality doesn't look as bad as it bad in air quotes again, uh, as bad as it currently does. So the minimum wage is it's not a policy to solve inequality. That gets thrown on there by even by by economists who should know better, but it's because it's catnip to journalists at the New York Times and the Washington Post and to, to a certain tranche of, of activists um, because it's 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 going to solve everything. So second point is is wealth inequality a problem? So why let's let's flip the question why might wealth inequality be a problem? Wealth inequality is a problem if it reduces mobility, so that's sort of big reason number one, but if you define mobility in a relative sense, I don't think it's very interesting. And especially if you define mobility in in a cross section, and this is almost always how it's defined in reports and newspaper articles, which is to say, they'll say something like, in 1980, the top 1% earned they usually say captured or stole or whatever, but earned. I'm gonna. I'm making up a number that's roughly in the right proximity. Twenty percent of of income, and in 2020 they earned 35 percent of income. Those are not the same people. And in fact, one of the the sort of toy examples that I do for my students is a world in which everyone is equal. They earn exactly the same amount. They are just at different points in their life cycle. So when they're young, they borrow money to fund their education. When they're, when they're middle-aged, they earn a lot. They pay back their debt and they save money for when they're old. And again, they don't earn very much. And I take it one step further and I say in each time period of their life, they eat the exact same amount. They have the exact same consumption. And depending on the definition of inequality that you use, this can look like an unbelievably unequal society, despite the fact that there is only one type of person in it. They just are young, middle-aged, or old. Now, that, of course, is a gross oversimplification, but it makes the point of looking at these cross-sectional measures of relative inequality is just not very interesting to me. So let's set that aside for a moment. The next issue is usually that, that you get kind of problems with the political process, that, that the very wealthy are able to kind of capture the political process. I think if you ask Mark Zuckerberg right now, if he feels like he has control over the political process, he, he would have some very strong feelings about that. Um, there's always the question of, which always surprised people, was why is there so little, little money in politics? If Mark Zuckerberg could buy the US Senate, don't you think he would have done it already? Like, why is there like, why doesn't Mark Zuckerberg spend $3 billion electing all of his own pet senators and then having Facebook get written into the Constitution? And so I'm not an expert on this at all, but it certainly doesn't seem like, you know, kind of eyeballing it, uh, that, that it seems to be a problem. So to me, wealth inequality is not a problem. 
mobility can be an issue. You don't want a sclerotic society. You don't want a permanent aristocracy or plutocracy. But the fact is, you know, we say, you know, rags to riches to rags in three generations. We are not ruled by Rockefellers and Carnegie's and Vanderbilt's. Now, those people are still, you know, they have generational wealth and that stuff matters. But they're not the richest people in America. They're not, you know, most for the most part. Why not? Because they spent their money on stuff. And they, uh, you know, they decided that they want to be, you know, art history majors. And so now they sit on the board of fancy museums. And in two generations, that money will be dissipated to the point where, you know, they're not even sitting on museum boards anymore. It'll be a Zuckerberg Chan child. And two generations after that, that'll be dissipated as well. I just find these arguments so unconvincing. And I think that they're motivated. I'm going to be uncharitable a little bit here. I think they're motivated by envy. And I'm going to push, I'm going to get a little specific. I'm not going to talk about any specific person, but it is kind of amazing how often rich, quote unquote, air quotes here, is defined as earning more than a two earner power couple of like a journalist married to an academic, you know, it's just, it just seems, you know, we, the joke is, you know, a, a, a rich man is one who earns a dollar more than his brother-in-law. I think so much of this is, is motivated by status and everything. I agree with you completely. How could it possibly matter whether Zuckerberg's yacht is 200 feet long or 220 feet long to that's actually meaningful to society? Do we think that some a high school dropout who is struggling to make ends meet, struggling to put food on the table for their kid, cares about whether Zuckerberg is flying in the latest Gulfstream or the three-year-old model? How could it possibly matter for anything? Sowell once said, quote, envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. This, this soul guy is just full of smart insights. <laughs> Someone should start a podcast about him. Now you're not you're not a you're not a huge soul reader, right? When I first met you, you had heard the name before, but hadn't really read anything. Is that correct? Oh, it's. It, I mean, I, you sort of can't can't help but absorb soul by osmosis when you know you you uh, frequent the blogs and podcasts that I do. But I I never really sat down and read his books directly. You know, I would read some of the columns and stuff like that. But you know, to me, I actually try to read people I disagree with or read people who are experts in fields that I am not an expert on. And the thing about soul is that, is that disagreements are, are rare and the insights that he has are ones that I, I grasp very easily. What I want to see is what's the best argument from someone who I disagree with. Right. Uh, and, and what, what can I learn from someone who is an expert on a topic that I don't know about? Now, you read the chapter that I sent you from uh, Basic Economics about the minimum wage, right? I'm going to put a link to that in the podcast show notes. Uh, do you fully agree with pretty much everything Sowell wrote there? Did you take any take issue with anything? I mean, I think that, well, so first of all, it's called Basic Economics for a reason, right? Which is great. Uh, but I, I think, you know, the things that you and I have just discussed push further than many of many of those issues. But I do think the points that Sowell makes in that chapter about who is likely to benefit and who is likely to lose? Uh, the, it's the most inexperienced. It is likely to be to be people from already marginalized backgrounds. And one of the points that I I, I make, and I 
haven't looked at any labor numbers since the pandemic started because they don't make any sense to anybody. But if you look in you know 2019 and you take the set of 18 to 49 year old um, black men without a high school degree who were not currently institutionalized by the by the labor bureau of labor statistics definition meaning that they weren't in jail they weren't in the um they weren't in the uh, military and they weren't living in a you know in a, in a group home like a, a psychiatric institution that obviously that last one's obviously a small number so you take this group these are people who should have a job they're also and, and i also took out the people who were in school okay so these are people who should have a job they're not disabled they're able-bodied they are what are called prime age men uh, and the full-time employment rate was something like 22%. Okay, so among this set of people, about 22% were employed. That is a staggering number. That is a number that is embarrassing for the country, uh, for, for the labor market, for thinking about people's opportunities and I don't know how anyone could look at that problem and say, you know what would make this better? Make it illegal for these men to be employed for less than $15 an hour, because almost none of them at that time were being paid 15 or more an hour. So this was literally kind of the bottom tranche of the labor market. And I say that not in the sense of their value or worth as human beings. I say that in the sense of their employability and their current employment status. These are people who need to get their foot on the first rung of the employment ladder. Now, will all of them take that up? Probably not. Will some of them? Yes. Once they have experience, it's easier for them to move up that employment ladder and to start getting that mobility and not end up billionaires, but end up at least more comfortable than they currently are. So we'll would often say that minimum wage laws have been a complete disaster and he would repeal them if he could. Do you, do you fully agree with that? I don't want to mess with the labor market. I would, I don't, there's a saying among a large number of economists, don't mess with prices to redistribute income. If you, you want to, if you want somebody to have money, find the most straightforward way to give them that money. Don't say, well, uh, you know, Alan, I see that you are selling lemonade on the corner and I really like you and I would like you to earn more money. I'd like you to have more money in your pocket. I'm going to mandate that cups of lemonade are sold for dollars a piece because, Alan, you deserve that money. Okay, That is messing with prices to try to redistribute income. Uh, and of course, I mean, I, I like to pick kind of silly examples like that because I think they put a, a fine point on it. If we want low income people to have money, we should give them money. It should be completely separate from this notion of saying, well, your employer is giving you a job, but that's not enough. They also have to provide for your family. It's really strange to make that argument. So I'm hearing, I don't want to go into this right now because we're running out of time, but I, I'm hearing a segue into a, an episode about universal basic income, which we'll save for a later date. But I do want to explore more in, a, in, a, in maybe the next episode about uh, income inequality and, and what kind of problem that is, if it is at all. But Jonathan Meir, thank you so much for joining us on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. It's been great having you and I've learned a lot. Oh, thanks for having me, Alan. It was fun. 
Now that Dr. Meir has left the show, let me say a few words about something really important. It's always an interesting experience when you talk with a really smart person who has spent many years studying a particular subject. You realize how little you know about that subject and how complicated it can be. No one person has the time or energy or even interest to take a deep dive into all the important issues of the day. How can one person know all there is to know about minimum wage laws, the history of Afghanistan, China, Russia, race relations, immigration, NATO, fracking, climate change, monetary policy, the list goes on and on. So often we defer to experts because we realize how little we know about a particular subject. But here's the important question. Are those experts more likely than lay people to get it right? In his monumental classic book, Intellectuals and Society, Sowell makes the case that intellectuals often get it completely wrong. They get it wrong, not because they are stupid or misguided, but because of the inherent incentives and constraints which go along with being a professional public intellectual. We'll talk about this concept more in a later episode, but for now, let me just say this. No matter how much an expert might sway me with arguments in the moment, I will always default back to using just plain old common sense to understand the world around me. There is no study or research project out there which is going to convince me that raising the minimum wage above the market level for wages is not going to cause unemployment and kill jobs. I'm sorry, I just can't believe that. It goes against basic common sense. And because common sense is all I've got, there is no other tool at my disposal. Of course, I will make mistakes in my thinking here and there, but I'd rather live with the mistakes of my own common sense than fall prey to the fashionable ideas of experts and turn over all my thinking to them. As Thomas Sowell once said, quote, the road to hell is paved with Ivy League degrees, end quote. Let me end this episode by reading an email I received from one of our listeners from Scott in Carlsbad, California. Dear Alan, many years ago, I was dating a left-wing girl and bought her a brand new copy of Thomas Sowell's Conflict of Visions. She gave it back to me and said she had looked through it, but found it a bit biased. When I examined the book, a soft cover, it was obvious it had never been opened. I purchased several copies of Basic Economics and had them in my car. The idea was that whenever I parked next to someone with a Bernie Sanders sticker on their car, I would set it on their windshield. Every time I did it, I found the book on the ground when I got back to my car. I think your idea of having a podcast might be more effective than what I was doing. Great work. Thanks for your story, Scott. I can relate to that. I learned many years ago that the surest way to get someone to not read a book is by giving it to them. People have to find their way to this stuff on their own somehow. I also learned that the vast majority of people just don't read books. That's not where they get their ideas. But that's a topic for another day. I'm Alan Woolen, and this has been Episode 7 of The Genius of Thomas Sowell Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.